Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Co-Sleeping. I'm Amanda. And I'm Adriana. And today we're grateful to be here with Ashley Mariani, couples therapist, to discuss postpartum intimacy. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you for having me. I know this is such a huge topic. We were talking a little bit before we hit record. One of the biggest things we get in our Secret Saturday question box or just in our DMs is about sex, postpartum sex, especially while co-sleeping. So before we dive into our conversation, Ashley, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about you and the work that it is that you do? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. First of all, I totally appreciate any opportunity that I can chat with anybody really about the topics that I'm passionate about. I'm a master's level social worker here in Ontario, Canada. My niche that I work with is this really interesting intersection between postpartum couples. I also do a lot of birthrights advocacy. Often what I see, and this is why I went with this very unique niche, is that when there has been birth trauma, couples really, really struggle with their intimacy after having a baby. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that I only see couples who have had birth trauma experiences and struggle with intimacy. I see a wide variety of clients, but this is kind of where my passion is, understanding that there's tons of aspects of birth and labor and having a baby that are well within our rights to say no or yes to. And if we start to advocate for ourselves, we can mitigate some of the birth trauma that takes place. That can really assist with feeling connected as a couple and feeling our bodies belong to us. And we can spend time postpartum full of oxytocin and love instead of anxiety and fear and intrusive thoughts. Thank you so much for mentioning that too, Ashley, that this starts from pregnancy and from the time that we're actually giving birth to our babies. And it's not something that just culminates post-baby. This actually starts well before. Mm -hmm. And there are ways to mitigate that anxiety or those negative feelings that we might attach to intimacy postpartum. And thank you so much for the work that you do too. I know you said this is a niche, what you're doing, but it's huge and it's something that's so needed. So just to kick us off, could you talk a little bit about what intimacy is and how it can differ from person to person? Intimacy is essentially vulnerability and openness, but it doesn't have to be sexual. And I think that sex is extremely vulnerable. And so often we attribute the word intimacy to sex and being sexual or sexual acts. It differs from person to person because what feels vulnerable differs from person to person. So something that feels very vulnerable to me might not be vulnerable to you and vice versa. And often our vulnerability is connected to our insecurities as well, which then is attached to our attachment styles and our ability to relate to others will often dictate what our definition of intimacy is. I love that you mentioned that about intimacy, not just meaning sex, because I think so many of us, even myself included for the longest time, whenever I would hear that word, my mind would go right to sex, but it's so much more than that. So I think that's just really important. And I know we touched on it a little bit in the beginning already, but why is it such a common struggle for most couples postpartum? I know even for me, like that six week appointment, it kind of hangs over your head for a while because you know you're going to get this you know, clearance. And actually at six weeks, I didn't even get the clearance to have sex. So I think it's it's really daunting to a lot of new moms. So why is it such a common struggle? 
Oh yeah. This the, the loaded question. I know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The six week postpartum checkups, a very good topic to chat about, but I think that intimacy is a struggle postpartum again, kind of linked back to this idea of vulnerability, vulnerability in general is a struggle. We are discovering so many new things about us. So many transitions, we can feel unsure of ourselves in our roles, our abilities. And that's like a super vulnerable place to be, whether, you know, you're navigating again, like I said, birth trauma and trauma in general is a very vulnerable place to be and feeling so unsure of are my emotions valid? Is my experience valid? What changes have happened in my body in general? And for many women, changes in their body definitely shifts their confidence level. We all have these subconscious messages that our value is rooted in the way our body looks and how desirable it is. And the shift in our body, now that we no longer have a human growing inside of it, creates a disconnect, inability to be vulnerable. There's tons of layers. And if we've been struggling emotionally, for example, um, you know, the, the highs and lows of postpartum hormones, including perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, like postpartum depression and anxiety, and our partners are really unsure of how to support us, we could feel very disconnected to them. So we protect ourselves from emotional hurt by avoiding intimacy, which is vulnerable. And many women I speak with will say that they need the emotional connection with their partner before they can think about being vulnerable in any other ways, including sex. To quickly backtrack just on how we view ourselves as sexual beings, as women, I uh, am a solo parent. So my relationship with my body there hasn't been that added layer of wondering how that might affect a partnership or how my partner may be viewing me postpartum. Mm-hmm. I think some of those stressors or those fears around reconnection don't exist for me at this moment, mm-hmm. but I've certainly been on my own journey with just seeing myself completely differently and feeling differently um, since having my son. One thing that I'd love to get just a little bit of your perspective on is how that shift can affect the way we see ourselves and ways to just even reconnect with ourselves, ways to maybe tap back into that sexual being that we felt more connected to pre-baby. Yeah, and this conversation is so important. So I'm going to get a little bit woo-woo here. Uh, So I hope that's okay. (laughs) If we think about like a yin-yang, for example, every one of us is comprised of masculine and feminine energy. And this doesn't necessarily mean you are masculine or you are feminine. It just means this masculine and feminine essence is a part of all of us. And so as a single parent, you are really spearheading a lot of masculine energy. You are the doer, the planner, the logical thinker. That kind of is what gets you through every day. That's what helps you survive. That's what assists you in being an amazing parent. And so it kind of leaves you very little room to step into that more feminine energy. And feminine energy is very creative. And feminine energy is very emotional and wild-hearted and free-flowing. I think a very important step if you're a solo parent is identifying where in my life am I allowing myself an outlet to feel that 
wild heart, free spirit, finding creative outlets? How am I making time for that so that I'm not always running on a a routine or a schedule or thinking ahead, planning? If we're talking about imagery, I like to think about masculine essence or masculine energy as being an old oak tree. So lots of branches and leaves for protection, lots of deep roots that go very far down to make it very stable, a thick trunk for support. The feminine energy is more like a dandelion seed flowing through the air, just kind of going with the wind and just finding shelter underneath the masculine energy. Tapping into this sacred sexual place as a solo parent, as a single parent, requires a lot of intention, a lot of thought. And so that's kind of where the masculine comes in, right? We can plan for this space of being completely unplanned. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm like, I wonder if I have more masculine energy because I am definitely not a um, a dandelion blowing in the wind. If that's, I'm definitely like, I'm a planner, I'm routine, this is what we're doing. But I know for me, it was such a common struggle and we're all about keeping it real here. You know, my husband's a priority, of course, but at six weeks postpartum, even at seven, eight, nine, ten 10 weeks postpartum, I was in survival mode. Like mm-hmm. I was worried about making sure I'm even eating my meals. Am I sleeping? Am I brushing my teeth? He was a priority. My daughter was a priority, but making time to have sex with him wasn't as much as a priority. And that's just facts, you know, the the you know common sense aspect of it i was tired mm-hmm. you know he was returning back to work i was trying to figure out what life now looked like as a family of 3 and we were in winter you know you have seasonal depression and you're tired so i think all of these kind of bundled into one it's kind of hard to then shift back to okay yes you're a priority and i also need to make our intimacy a priority as well so that was something i really struggled with i was breastfeeding and still breastfeeding and i know it's pretty common due to the hormone fluctuation that a lot of moms who are breastfeeding also have a lower sex drive. So when you combine that in, it's just, it's a lot to take in. You know, I was fortunate that I had such a supportive partner. We've been together, gosh, over 11 years now. So he was able to not really maybe fully understand what I'm going through, but still be able to support. But I know um, there's a lot of, you know, partners who aren't really understanding of the changes and the just needing time. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, you bring up so many really valid points. So First and foremost, in today's world, most moms are primarily in their masculine energy, which is why it becomes so difficult for us to move to that vulnerable place, right? We entered this in this time in the world where it's kind of like, yes, we can do everything that our male counterparts can do, but we also have to do everything that we were already doing anyway. So we have so much on our plates. We have to play so many roles that kind of leads to this mental load of motherhood. But this is why we find now more than ever, women are uh, creating Etsy shops and they're creating podcasts, right? So we have this longing for creativity, which is that feminine essence inside of us saying like, this is your outlet. This is your place to experience this other side of the brain and feel safe. So I think that, yes, it makes total sense to me that you are feeling more like an oak tree and less like a dandelion seed. (laughs) 
The other thing that you mentioned is the six week checkup. One thing that is not taken into account at the six week checkup is individual preferences. It's a cookie cutter approach to this six week checkup, right? Usually if you've had a cesarean, usually those aren't checked. Usually it's just kind of like this verbal conversation. How are you feeling? Oh, you're feeling a little bit down here. Take this assessment. Oh, you seem to be okay. If not, here's some meds. Come back in a couple months and we'll reassess type thing. And so much is missed in that 15 minute session. The relationship with your provider might not even be intimate enough for you to feel comfortable and vulnerable saying, hey, I'm struggling, I'm not doing well. So I'm not here to even get the go ahead to have sex. I'm here to talk to you about my mental health. And so there's a lot of pressure because that six week checkup really feels like the sex checkup. This is the green flag to have sex, but there are so many other things that need to be talked about before the physical aspect of, yes, your genitals are ready for reproduction again. Ashley, I also have just been thinking as we're speaking for myself, so probably for at least some others, intimacy and sex can be completely separate. And it's always wonderful when those two things can come together and you experience both. I've certainly been able to find time to take care of my needs sexually for myself, Mm -hmm. not with other people. I want to make that extremely clear, but just me on my own. Intimacy is something that's obviously lacking when that's happening, especially because I'm pressed for time. It's just kind of taking care of this physical need. Mm -hmm. So I know that intimacy can be something that people struggle with as much as sort of that physical readiness. I might not have or be in partnership right now, but at some point, even if it is down the line, would like to be. Can you kind of walk us through ways that couples or solo parents that are thinking about their futures can reconnect with intimacy, separate to sexual intimacy, just intimacy in general, how to sort of reconnect on that level to make sex easier, if that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, totally. And if, if we kind of go back to this idea of intimacy being vulnerability and openness, how can you find opportunities for vulnerability and openness. And if we're going to explore this idea of vulnerability, we also have to explore the idea of safety. So if you are either in a relationship or if you're a solo person, finding outlets in your life that feel safe, that feel vulnerable, but a safe vulnerable and the ability to connect and experience openness. So As a single mom, it might make sense for you to find intimacy in the context of your friendships and family. It might make sense to plan, you know, weekly dinners as a village, as a village of friends or a village of family members. It might make sense for you to uh, go out of your way and connect with people who share similar hobbies or interests as you so that you can connect with human beings. And I think that that's the other pieces that connect with other human beings. And we allow ourselves this opportunity for vulnerability and openness. Things can have a ripple effect from there. And within the context of a relationship, we forget to do that sometimes, right? We forget to ask our partners about their day, or we forget to to remember that they are also individuals with their own needs. And they probably want to tell us about the things that they struggled with today just as much as we want to tell them. So 
turning to your partner and remembering that they're a human being with interests and needs as well. And so how can you connect with them as you would connect with a new friend? Sit down, play a game of cards, do a board game. I think that this Netflix culture is interesting because it gives us something to do with our partners and something that we can talk about with our partners as well. But there are definitely other ways. The pandemic has made it difficult because there's this added layer of feeling isolated and disconnect. This ability to socially engage was non-existent for a while. And so we were really turning to our partners for everything including friendships and meeting our social engagement needs, knowing that we have them as friends and partners and co-parents is very important, but also being able to go outside of our relationship and find friendships and camaraderie and villages to help meet those needs is an important piece to being able to come back to our partner and expect less of them. And I think that's such a great point that you guys both bring up that sometimes you're able to meet this physical need, but then you're still lacking the intimacy layer of it. Because so often when we do, you know, secret Saturdays or in our question boxes, we see a lot of that. And I think a lot of it can be situations like Adriana's where she is a solo parent. And it can also be the added layer of time and being stressed out and also co-sleeping. You know, the majority of our listeners and followers are sleeping with one one, two, three children in their bed. And we have that idea, okay, like sex in bed, in parents' bed. And that's why a lot of people shame parents for co-sleeping or have negative effects towards it's like, where's your time with your partner? You kind of have to get creative. You know, I joke around all the time, you know, never to sit on a co-sleeper's couch. Because, you know, for us, it had never been a space issue. Like we have other rooms, but I know sometimes the time, you know, if you're breastfeeding and you have a child that doesn't love sleep and you're kind of attached to them till 10, 11 o'clock at night, by the time that you're able to roll away from your child at the end of the night, most people don't want to then roll back into bed with their partner. Mm. You know, being touched out, having that mental load of motherhood, all of those things are very real. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of parents struggle with that. So how do we find, I guess, the time and the space to be intimate, to have sex while you're co-sleeping? You know, my advice has always been to get creative, but even another added layer of that, you know, how are we shutting our mind off? You know, for me, I know to prioritize my husband, his love language is physical touch, where mine, I kind of go back and forth between acts of service and quality time. I feel like I was quality time before I had my daughter. Now I'm definitely more acts of service. Mm -hmm. So even just, you know, at the end of the day, sitting on the couch, if he's telling me about his day or talking, even just putting my foot on his leg or my hand on his back, those small added physical touch moments that we're not jumping each other's bones, we're not having sex, we're not making out, but having that, hey, I'm here, I'm listening, this is the physical touch that you need. Mm. How do we expand on that? How do we make time and space for our partner and for the actual act of sex? Mm. Another loaded question at you, but the people want to (laughs) know. Well, you bring up, again, several great points. This idea of chances are, in my experience, the majority of co-sleepers are also breastfeeding. And we know that milk production means that estrogen is very low, which can impact ability to feel desire. 
you're probably not getting the best sleep and you're probably touched out in general. And so how do you combat this feeling of like just hormonal disconnect with the logistics of the act of being sexual? First of all, we kind of have to tune into our body. Like what is happening for your body? Is this a matter of, you know, my libido is super low. I'm not interested. Is there something else that's going on? Should I be getting some blood work done? Should I be connecting with maybe like a naturopathic doctor that specializes in postpartum hormones to start addressing things that could be happening that are out of my ability to see or understand at the moment? The logistics of co-sleeping is very interesting and again, takes a lot of vulnerability, right? Because playfulness is vulnerability. It can feel very vulnerable to try something new in the realm of sexuality. It can feel very vulnerable to say to your partner, hey, I'm ready to have sex again. Could we maybe try a quickie in the bathroom on the counter? Could we maybe try this position that I've never done before? because I'm not super confident about you seeing my body, but I'm willing to kind of get there. And that might mean, you know, on an office chair or if you have a finished basement, something like that. Uh, Even in the car, going for a drive in the car or sitting even in the driveway, not even going for a drive if the babies are sleeping, but on the floor beside the bed, if this is something that makes sense for you. And I think that it kind of sucks because we have to really pre-plan in some circumstances, which can take the spontaneity and the romance out of it. A lot of us are reminiscing on times when sex felt very spontaneous, just kind of like the here and now take me idea and saying to your partner, like, I really want this to happen. The baby's nap is at this time. We can put the toddler in front of the iPad and be like in the next room type thing and they're going to be safe. And even if we don't do screen time, this is an important thing for us to connect. Do what you can with what you have and recognize that it's okay to be vulnerable. But again, like Amanda, like we, we were mentioning this idea of if your partner's love language is physical touch, understanding is this about sex? Is this about our genitals coming into contact with each other or is it about the fact that energetically I haven't touched you in a very long time touched you with intention and so when we're driving in the car can I rub the back of your neck can I hold your hand you know the car is a great opportunity everybody's buckled in nobody's going anywhere taking that opportunity for moments of connection is really important. If you're sitting on the couch, how can your bodies be touching even if you're on other ends of the couch? And if you're someone who's touched out, that's your nervous system communicating with you that it needs something. If you've been in fight or flight, then it needs you to be able to regulate and come back to this parasympathetic state. So how are you moving through your stress response cycle and taking responsibility so that you can show up as your best self within the context of the relationship and your partner as well, right? It's our responsibilities to give our bodies what they're asking for and what they need. And so how much of it is your partner's responsibility to show up in a particular way and how much of it is your responsibility to show up in a particular way. Hi everyone. Just wanted to take a quick break to talk about one of our favorite companies, Brightbox. Brightbox is the completely customizable and perfectly curated happy mail. 
At Coffee and Co-Sleeping, we're passionate about normalizing conversations that society has deemed as taboo. That's why we love Brightbox's newest collab, The Bestie Box. Brightbox joined forces with social worker and sex therapist Kristen Hodson to design a box that will encourage important conversations around our sexual health. Whether it's a sister, a best friend, or someone close, send a fun and educational surprise to learn about how and what kind of lubricant can improve your health and which ones might actually hurt. If the Bestie Box isn't for you, Brightbox has dozens of perfectly picked gifts with new boxes dropping every Wednesday, or even create your own. So head on over to brightboxes.com and use co-sleeping3 for $3 off an add-on. That's brightboxes.com and our code is co-sleeping3. Make somebody's day today and happy sending. My girlfriends that have children and are either married or in partnerships, the one thing that I hear a lot of, and I'm sure greatly affects their sex lives and their intimacy with their partners, is this idea of partner resentment, that after baby comes, maybe things feel a little lopsided, or there were conversations that weren't had, or you thought you had the appropriate conversations to make sure that things felt equal in responsibility, or that you were going to be supporting one another, but As we all know, once your baby does come, things can just be upside down for a little while and those conversations go out the window and you're just trying to figure it out. I think sometimes partner resentment, I could certainly imagine, affects your sex life. Mm. And after you rule out any kind of hormonal issues or physical issues or anything like that, if those things are all perfectly intact, your relationship may not be. Sometimes addressing the underlying issues within your relationship could potentially help the intimacy and your sexual relationship with your partner. I know, Ashley, I'm sure you probably hear about this with clients in your practice all the time. Yeah. And it's usually kind of like my next step, exactly this idea of let's address hormones and let's go back to, do you feel emotionally safe in your relationship? Because from a a neuropsychological standpoint, we kind of have to understand our brains. And when we feel resentment towards our partner and even ragey, right? Postpartum rage is a very common experience. And so this is kind of the signal or indicator that your nervous system is in the fight or flight mode, probably the most common way to talk about it. We have two parts of our brain. We have our amygdala, which is very primal, you know, most animals have an amygdala. And we have our prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for logic, rational thinking, planning, problem solving. And our amygdala is responsible for all of our primal interactions that keep us alive as a species. And so when our brains detect a threat, it doesn't really care because the amygdala is such an old part of our brains. Stephen C. Hayes likes to say we have an old brain for a new world, meaning that our brain picks up on old threats, but we have new modern day threats that are constantly evolving. And so where at one point our brain would have detected a threat as a predator, like a saber toothed tiger, let's say. Now the threat is not the saber toothed tiger. The threat is our partner coming home in a shitty mood and leaving their dirty boots on the carpet or something along those lines. And so in that moment, our amygdala kicks the prefrontal cortex out of the driver's seat and says, we are acting from a place of emotion right now and we feel threat. So we're either going to freeze 
run, fight, fawn, which is usually less common, but this idea of just saying yes, 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 all the time, chances are we're either shutting down or we're internally angry at our partner or even externally angry. They're unsure of, you know, why are, why are you feeling this way? I don't, I don't get it. Like it's just dirt on the carpet. Go get the vacuum. It's not a big deal, which then perpetuates this anger. And you go get the vacuum. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So it's kind of like your nervous system is telling you that there's this threat. And so the part of the nervous system that we would be operating in is our sympathetic. That's our fight or flight. And in order to feel relaxed, to digest our food, to experience arousal and higher libido, we need to be in our parasympathetic. And so it does not make sense for our body to want to stop and have sex if we assume we are running from or fighting a predator, right? It's not going to be like, oh, hey, a saber-toothed tiger is coming at you right now. Let's just like pull over for a quickie and hope that we don't get eaten. It's not going to happen. So our body needs to be in the parasympathetic state, which is rest or digest, feed or breed. How do we get there? knowing that you you can't eliminate your stressors. You can't necessarily eliminate your partner doing things that are going to piss you off, right? It's just going to happen. So then what do we do in order to move through that stress response cycle? And that is the place we need to be. We need to learn uniquely and individually who we are and what we need to move through our stress response cycle so that we can move our nervous systems into the parasympathetic state so that we can feel arousal and we can feel connection and feel safety. And I think we would be amiss too if we don't discuss the whole physical aspect of it too, of a lot of new moms feeling insecure. I know Adriana and I just had an episode on body positivity and self-confidence, but we all know, um, you know, if you're listening, I'm sure you've had a child that even if you feel that your body physically looks the way that it did before, it's still so different. And I know that's something I really struggled with. I feel like before having my daughter, and I'm sure many people can relate, I looked at a lot of parts of my body, like it was sexualized, Mm -hmm. whether that be because, you know, I was in my mid twenties and I was having sex or because media has told me that as a young woman, my body should be sexualized. But now having my daughter, like my breasts no longer are a sexual object to me, to my husband, to anybody. They're more, um, you know, that's her food source. And I still, you know, she's three and a half and I still look at it that way. So that was a really big hurdle for me to overcome to not only feel like my body was still mine because I just grew a human for 10 months, pushed her out of me. Now I'm feeding her. I'm her warmth. I'm her security. I'm her home. And now I need to snap out of that. Oh, this body's still yours. That's still your same face in the mirror and your husband's still attracted to it. Mm. I'm still proud of my body in what it's accomplished and what it's done for my daughter. And I'm also proud of the way it looks and that's okay. Mm -hmm. So I never had to come over a lot of that, you know, oh, he's, you know, no longer attracted to me or he doesn't like the way I look. But there's a lot of people that are struggling with that. And I think that's really important because common theme of this is having, you know, an open dialogue with your partner and communicating these things, but also communicating to yourself and being honest. I think that's important. I think at around 
around eight, nine weeks postpartum, I followed up with a specialist because I was having um, some long-term bleeding issues. I had some tear that kind of overhealed and I, j- I didn't feel ready for sex. And I sat down with my partner and I was like, this isn't happening. Like we can do other things. We can try other things. But the idea of jumping into bed and having sex right now, like I'm scared how that's going to feel. I'm like physically and emotionally, you know, he reassured me like, oh, you know, you're beautiful. I love the way you look like, and I was like, no, it's not even about that. It's so much more than that. And I think sometimes we see the surface level of it all. And sometimes we need to dive in and really, really get to the root issue sometimes. Yeah, I really love that. And it resonates with me a lot. When my husband and I met each other, we were amateur bodybuilders. I competed anyways, and he was in and out of the idea of competing. Our our bodies looked really different. Um, And then I had my son who's now five. And for the most part, I think I was really hard on my body because I had um, really unhealthy standards. But looking back, like I was healthy and beautiful regardless. And then 13 months ago, I gave birth to my twins, which I carried till 40 weeks. And so my body grew significantly. And yeah, it it changed a whole heck of a lot. And I struggled probably up until a couple months ago to to look at myself and feel like I recognized myself at all. And it's hard. And and we do hear this message that like, you know, love yourself, you're beautiful. And I think that we kind of have to just get to this point where we're accepting ourselves versus loving ourselves. And when we have underlying health related issues, it creates a, a deeper anxiety, right? And if we go back to this idea of threats and our brain not being able to move into the sexy mode, when we perceive threats, our health and things being uh, not status quo with our body are also interpreted as threats. And so if you're bleeding or if you have a tear or there's pain, and people that live with chronic pain will be able to attest to this, that living with pain is just this constant alarm going off in your body that there's a threat. Of course, our nervous systems aren't going to be able to get us to this place where we can relax enough to just be okay with intimacy of any capacity, really. I think something I'll be interested to see for the future, I know way, way, way down the future, Adriana, but for somebody like me who has been in a long-term relationship and I'm so comfortable in my relationship. So I was able to have these open conversations with my husband, like, oh no, like not tonight or, oh, I'm tired or let's fulfill this physical need, so to speak. I wonder if you've thought at all, like in the future, having these conversations with a partner, is that something that you've thought about? Or is it so far from the road that you're on right now? You don't worry about that. The thought of a relationship is so abstract at the moment for like a number of reasons that we could have like an entire episode on Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, that it's not something I think about, but I'm certainly doing a little bit of rewiring on how I view my own personhood, my body, sexuality. I'm definitely doing work within on myself because not only does it affect me in a very big and obvious way. But how I view myself, how I talk about myself affects my son and the lens through which he sees people and where he assigns value. And so one thing I've been really practicing just in regards to sexuality and and, and not even just sexuality, but my physical appearance, since we were just talking about that and Ashley kind of touched upon how her body's changed and things have changed over the course of time. My body's definitely changed in certain ways. I'm 34 and in some ways I feel more confidently than I ever have. What I'm trying to do is just not assign value to things that have changed. So like 
my breasts have changed after breastfeeding my son for almost a year and a half. I'm trying not to assign the word different in any kind of a negative or positive way. They're just different and that's okay. Mm -hmm. So right now what I'm working on is being okay with where I'm at, truly not just saying that to myself in the mirror and like really trying to believe it, but actually feeling it so that whenever a partnership may enter my life, whenever that might be, that I'm in a place where those conversations are easy because of how I feel within. And there's no timelines or pressure on that. I think that's really important too, because as somebody who's in a relationship, I feel like sometimes we put a certain timeline on things like I should feel ready by this point or this should happen tonight. But for the other flip of the coin, for somebody who's a solo parent, you can't put timelines on these things like, oh, you know, I'll feel ready at this point or, you know, maybe this is when I'll be ready to enter another relationship because we really, we just don't, we don't know. And I think sometimes when we put ourselves, I know we're both planners, very type A and we like to plan everything out, but there's some things that we just kind of got to be that dandelion blowing in the wind. And sometimes that's that's hard for us type A people. Oh, yeah. In line with what we're talking about right now, timelines and pressure, the one thing that we see so much of, and this is when it comes to anything, when it comes to co-sleeping, bed sharing, sex with your partner, postpartum, we get so many questions about, is it okay if, is it okay if I'm not ready for this or I'm not ready for that? Is it okay? Or when should I stop, you know, closely? When should I stop, you know, refusing sex or whatever? It's a lot of when, that's the big question. Timelines are huge for new parents. And I think that people think that there's an answer that either we can give them or that they can seek somewhere. Is there any kind of advice you can give to new moms for how to navigate a conversation with a partner on readiness? Yeah, I love this conversation, this topic, because it comes up a lot too in practice. And I would say that in any topic, it's all individual to the person, unless we're talking about timelines around accessing resources that are time sensitive. So, you know, when should I seek out therapy? Let's say if you're thinking about it, it's never too early to do it, right? We have, we have couples and women who seek out therapy just to build a relationship with their therapist before anything really even becomes an issue. And so when it comes down to the conversations that are hard to have, if you're feeling like it's a difficult conversation to have and you need the support and you're waiting for someone to help you with how to have that dialogue, then therapy can be very, very helpful with that. But in terms of like, when should we be having sex? When does that make sense? You know, I hear a lot, how often should we be having sex? And really, this is all a matter of individual needs of the of the couple themselves no one else can tell you what is normal and what is not. Um, we can talk about what is common. We can talk about trends that we see, but that doesn't mean that if you are doing something that's not on trend, let's say, that, that there's anything wrong with you or with the couple. But again, the timelines that are time sensitive really has to do with being either in pain physically or in pain emotionally. But everything other than that is really curated to what makes sense for the couple. So we ask all of our guests that we have on, what is your go-to coffee order? Oh, that would be, well, I guess it really depends on where I go. A large matcha latte with almond milk. I haven't gotten on the uh, the matcha bandwagon yet. My husband has it every morning. He's a big matcha guy, but I just can't. I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> we love it here. We bake with it. We drink it. It's fantastic. 
Thank you so much, Ashley, for spending this morning with us. I know our listeners will really appreciate your insight and it's been wonderful having you on. Thank you so much. And then before we go to where can our listeners find more about you? I know you had mentioned before we hit recording that you're doing some rebranding and rebuilding your website. I know you are taking clients of senior stories. So how can our listeners hear more about you? Yes. So right now my website is down, unfortunately, because I am rebranding. My Instagram is a great place to get a sense of who I am and what I look like. And you're listening to this, so my voice, and that really helps with trying to figure out if somebody is a good fit as a therapist or not. So my Instagram is at mind, M-I-N-D, online therapy.ca. Email is probably the easiest way to get a hold of me, which is contact at mindonline.ca. And we'll put all that um, information in the link of our bio for this episode. Ashley, thank you again so much for joining us today. I know this is a conversation that affects a lot of new moms and a lot of us are going through it. So thank you again. Thank you both. It was lovely chatting with you. Mm -hmm. 